This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job with politics out the boring bits because everyone else has just sat on their arse and done nothing? Any sign of that? No! Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, we're going back to the future, Blair to the future, if you like, taking a look at Keir Starmer's very retro reshuffle. Patrick Maguire takes us through what it all actually means. Ignore everyone else, Patrick McGuire knows what he's talking about. Chris Ward used to work for Keir Starmer and has helped him on previous reshuffles. Plus, Peter Mandelson, yes, Lord Mandelson no less, joins us to discuss whether or not this really is a return to the new Labour days. All that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at the news for today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Uh, Joined this morning, as we always are on a Tuesday morning, by Danny Finkelstein. Hello, Danny Finkelstein. Hello, the Mandarin restaurant that was just up the road from my parents' house. That's what you'd bring back from the yeah, 90s? Yeah, yeah. Very good. And uh, Don't ask me. I John thought we got Stevens. away with that. Oh, I don't John know. John Stevens of the Daily Mirror. Oh, I don't know. What, what, what were you doing in the 90s? Were you born in the 90s? Yeah, I was, sadly. Um, I was a child at school, primary school. Yeah. Who knows? What about that left-wing Sunday newspaper? What was that called? I've forgotten now. But that was maybe the 1980s. <laughs> they, they had a, they, they had the News on Sunday. That's now you're making called. me look totally ignorant. Just <laughs> the uh, news on showing Sunday. me up again. I don't remember that. No. no they, they end, there's an amazing book on it um, uh, about how they, they created this uh, newspaper that was going to be the newspaper of the left because all the newspapers, you know, <laughs> the Daily Mail, Patch of the Daily Mail were supposed to be right-wing, so they created this. And it was just a disaster. No one read it, and they... People would come into reception and demand to be seen by the editor. Pressure groups, you know, because yeah. their story and they, they had fights in which one <laughs> person, you know, the political editor, punched the arts editor and said that's for the working class. And that's what <laughs> it was. It's, it's an absolutely fantastic <clears throat> book. It's called something like it's got some sort of it's called the story. Anyway, the story of the news disaster. The story of the news on Sunday. I think it's called. There we are. Launched in April nineteen eighty seven. It closed seven months later. Oh, I missed out then. So, it was, yeah. There we are. When you start talking about uh, a little red 
Sunday left wing Sunday newspaper. I thought you meant the Independent on Sunday when I worked there. <laughs> anyway, let's move on uh, and stop reminiscing about the nineties. Uh, right, let's come bang up to date. Uh, just because it's still really funny. Let's take a listen to Gillian Keegan getting cross. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a f- good job because everyone else has sat on their ass and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that. No. Now, um, there's a. <laughs> There's an interesting question here, uh, Danny, because um, Rishi Sunak keeps sort of making the same point. Why Why does nobody give us the credit for the things we have done? Most schools aren't falling down. Uh, most uh, uh, people aren't no. really struggling. <coughs> so I'll take, say two things. The most important thing to say first is I can't believe they're trying to run this argument. It will never ever, ever work. Governments are responsible. He's the Prime Minister. She's the Education Secretary. They're simply responsible when something like this happens. And not only, you know, will the country expect it in a common sense way, but also all political science shows uh, people just simply hold the government, you know, to account stroke to blame for it. I understand the point they're trying to make. Uh, They're trying to make the point that what they did was actually call time on it. Uh, it's something that is in lots of pla- lots of buildings all over the world, and they've actually said, no, we have to do something about this. And what they expect, uh, but completely naively, is that everyone will be grateful for that instead of feeling somebody should have done something about it. And, you know, the Conservative Party's been in power for 13 years, so they're reasonable candidates uh, for it. Uh, so I think this... Uh, you know, while it's possible just about to comprehend where the frustration comes from after you've been asked questions about it all day, it's really, really ill-judged. And it's completely, definitely, 100,000% will not work. Um, John, have you seen the uh, the graphics on Twitter? I have. I mean, that's what I was going to point to. I mean, in the last hour, Gillian Keegan herself has tweeted a graphic that just in big letters says, most schools, and then in big underlines in red, unaffected, most schools unaffected. So the message seems to be, well, there's only some schools where pupils are at risk of dangerous concrete falling on them and killing them. And it's such a bad argument. And you can just think, goodness me, this isn't like just some tweet that was put up on some mundane issue that won't get much scrutiny. We've had several days of this now. You think they would be looking over everything and think, mm, do, you, do you think that's quite the right messaging? Isn't, isn't Not at all. Isn't there an Alan Partridge joke yes. where he goes through all no, the years no, where nothing happens and then one year uh, he said, one the, year ran over day-to-day. one child. No, it's from the day to day. I mean, it is Steve Coogan and he's playing the security guard in a swimming pool. And he goes, in 1987, no one died. In 1998, no one died. In 1989, someone died. In 1990, no one died. And he's like, well, look at all these other years when no one died on my watch. So basically, lots of people are now doing spoofs of this Gillian Keegan thing, including the Labour Party, which has put out... Gillian Keegan's was called Jaws Update. Uh, Sorry, it's called Rack Update. The Labour one is called Jaws Update. And it just says, most beachgoers not eaten by Big Shark. Well, there's a very fascinating thing about the Jaws. That, that was a real event. Uh, and uh, in the uh, subsequent presidential election, Woodrow Wilson, who had absolutely nothing, obviously, to do with beach policy in New Jersey, um, he suffered in the areas where there were shark attacks. There was a depression in his vote. In other words, the electorate not only... Uh, you know, is the argument risible, but it can't work. Um, people people just hold the government responsible and it would be much better for Gillian Keegan and Rishi Sunak to say, I'm going to concentrate on how to put this problem right. We can leave an argument about whose fault it was to later. And, um, 
you know, they're going to have that argument and they will not win it. So if you increase the salience of it, you're just increasing the salience of a negative issue for you. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't actually, as it happens, think that this, the, this government does anything more than share the blame that's shared out between the people who built these buildings, local authorities, governments over the years, all the people who've inspected it. They are, everybody who's been responsible for it has been responsible for overseeing things like this. And I suppose everybody's been involved in their professional life in things they think afterwards, well, we certainly could have done that a lot better. And it's got terrible consequences. What you don't do in those circumstances is then try and, you know, say, well, my blame for it is only a small proportion. Other people's blame for it. They're not going to win that battle. It's not an edifying battle to fight. Uh, And um, the fact that they feel it, they feel sort of too much of it has been placed on them, even though I actually think if you sat down with a piece of paper, that is a reasonable argument. It'll never, ever fly. But it's not just on this issue, is it, John? It's like Rishi Sunak a few weeks ago got really a bit snippy about how much money they'd spent on energy bills. And so you might not have noticed, but actually we did spend lots of money on on energy bills. And and, and it's this sort of... He's he's doing it as well on other issues. This sort of like, actually, I think you'll find... And once you're you're doing that, you know, these are conversations to be had behind closed doors. Yeah, and I think Rishi Sunak can be a bit thin-skinned. Occasionally in interviews, something does get to him like that and he starts going about, oh, I was the Chancellor who did furlough, rah, 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 rah. But with all of these things, we know that a lot of the time that ministers didn't personally cause the problem. But the whole point of being a government minister, or maybe not the whole point, but a key part of the job is things happen in the country and you have to fix them and you need to come up with, as Danny said, the answers. And the thing that government haven't been able to do over the last few days, this story started appearing in the newspapers at the beginning of last week and then it properly kicked off, was it on Thursday evening? And then even on Sunday, which is several days later, when Jeremy Hunt was doing the broadcast round, he wasn't able to say this is the problem, this is the scale of it, and this is what we're going to do. He just seemed a bit jumbled. Yesterday, after not appearing on TV or radio for several days, apart from doing that odd YouTube clip with (laughs) dance music in the background, Gillian Keegan was barely off the TV. You know, she did all the morning round, then she had to go back on again, do a pull clip, apologise for swearing. Then she was in the Commons, and then she was out in the evening. But those basic questions of... What is the exact scale of this problem and what are you going to do about it? They still don't have an answer on. And why do we still not have this list of schools, which just seems the mad thing? And when you say to the ministers, why have you not published a list of schools which are affected? They keep saying, oh, it would be wrong to publish it in case the the parents involved aren't aware and da-da-da-da. And it's like, this isn't a case where the police don't want to name someone's died because they're struggling to get hold of a family member who's on holiday in, like, Tahiti or something. It's just like, well, surely parents should know by now. And if they don't know by now, that is... There's a problem. The government could do could tell them. So it's one of the things that I I often sort of say to politicians, if you can't... If you you just... Let's start with what the answer to this question is. If you decide you can't share that answer, why don't you share the reasons you can't share it? If you feel that you can't share that, then maybe you're in the wrong position. Uh, And so, you know, if the government does... Uh, have a re and often you find you know I remember during the 1997 uh, general election the government couldn't recall parliament in order to look at a report right and 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 
it wasn't in its power. And yet it sort of, it wasn't allowed to say so for all sort of various legal reasons. It could, it, 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 it got itself into a position where it had a decent answer, but then it wasn't allowed to say what the answer was. It, these things can happen in government, yeah. but you've got to find a way of articulating that. So people need to understand that. If there is a reason why the government decides it can't, and it's a comp- one that was compelling enough to persuade them, and again, something I say to politicians, if an argument was compelling enough to persuade you to take this course of action, maybe it'll be compelling enough to persuade other people to agree with you. So why don't you share it? And I... I this is I find very perplexing often in politics, and they've got they must have been persuaded not to do this. Intelligent people, Rishi Sunet's very intelligent, and so is Gillian Keegan. They must have sat around had a meeting with a lot of other intelligent people and agreed at the end, no, that policy should be not to share it, right? Because they know they're under this pressure. Well, why? Yeah, yeah. And and I'm sure there is a reason because otherwise they wouldn't have taken it. Well, why don't they share that? We can all then judge whether that's a ridiculous reason, but it must be one. Uh, well, let's move on, uh, because maybe we should reflect on whether or not it would be any different if Liz Truss was still Prime Minister. Uh, it's a year ago today she was named the new Tory leader, so the anniversary is tomorrow when she actually entered Downing Street. And John, you've been doing, you've been marking this anniversary with some very important journalism. <laughs> so I'm always well known for important journalism, but yeah, this is, remember when she's Prime Minister, she had that weird lecture which just looked like a higgledy-piggledy pile of wooden bricks and it was just it was so the, distinctive the, the jenga lecture the jenga lecture yeah. and that was it um they spent four thousand pounds on it because obviously all prime ministers need their own personalized lectern rather than the kind of plain one that came before and hers was slightly more eye-catching they spent all this money on the lectern and then obviously she didn't last as prime minister for very long and usually because not many people remember what the lecterns look like. They end up getting recycled. They pop them in, you know, the Department for Business or the Embassy in Paris or Honolulu or wherever. <laughs> they find a new life. But sadly for this lectern, it is still somewhere in number 10. Because it's too should, it's too well known. We should have an exhibition of, um, maybe the British Museum yeah. could do that as they've joined in, of fiascos. <laughs> uh, right? And so uh, maybe political fiascos, you could have William's baseball cap, which obviously you know, I was in the vicinity yeah. of. You could have uh, this... Lectern, the, lectern. The, the Jenga lectern, um, the Ed Miliband's the Millie Stone. You could yeah. have uh, that without question. The, the advert, the Tory demonised advert. But do you think there is a problem in this country that where would you go to see political memorabilia? Because yeah. it doesn't quite fit in the V&A or the Science Museum or Natural History. And the British Museum, I don't... It's a while since yeah. I've been around the British Museum. But it doesn't seem to have those sort of arc, uh, like bits and pieces. Because in America, all former presidents have well, a Well, that's what I was going to say. Do yeah. we need a Liz Museum. Trust? It's now an eBay. Do we need a Liz <laughs> Trust Prime Ministerial <laughs> Library is basically the conclusion we're coming to. That Just somewhere, yeah. a monument where people can visit. Because I'd like to see that. Funnily enough, I found I, I like the um, the lecture when I first saw it, but I also I've also always had a political analogy of Jenga, uh, which is that in politics you don't know which is the brick that you're going to pull yeah. out that well, the whole and that's obviously a, a fundamental conservative tenant that that sort of societies like Jenga and you never know which brick so you, you're always cautious about it turned pulling out them out. it was billions of pounds of uncosted tax out. cuts yeah. exactly so surprise, it, was, surprise. it was an amazing metaphor for a premiership it was that, that it was a block in Jenga which everyone said don't touch that one <laughs> 
it was that one. Completely. Yeah. So it was a it was a metaphor. <laughs> but I really, really agree. Maybe this program can be the genesis of it. Yeah. I really agree that I I a kind of uh, well, you know, when you when you finally publish your uh, your I'll book of, your book about yeah, these yeah, kind yeah. of things, fifty that, places. Yeah, yeah. Places, you do fifty objects. Fifty objects. Now. 50 objects it would fit. I'll make a note of that. Get on I think it would fit with it. And and um, objects. It's very descriptive. They might be quite similar to the fifty places. But yeah, I think a, mu- a museum of political fiasco. There's definitely something in that. That's tomorrow's show sorted. Uh, if you've got any ideas for the museum of political fiasco, uh, email me matt at times radio. Uh, but we don't know where this lectern is. John. Somewhere in Downing Street. So using freedom of information laws, usually used to get loads of data and boring things and spreadsheets that you have to kind of put oh. together. Um, I did it last. Well, so, I did... Sorry, John, I was going to take it called the Washington Post. Office, they, they want to hide. They want to make a film. So I did it. I did it earlier this year. Say, where is the lectern? And they said, well, usually they get repurposed, but this one's in Downing Street. And then when I saw it was currency anniversary, I put in my jar. I thought, oh, do you need to do that over the summer? Put in another FOI. Yeah, See if it has found a home. No, they, it they won't necessarily know where it is. So when when I was working for uh, John Major, we first of all we given to give a presentation in the cabinet room. And I, all I wanted was a, um, one of those, you know, overhead projectors. I mean, older, and they said, sir, this is Downing Street. It's not a conference centre. <laughs> and then when we subsequently did a presentation at Chequers, this involved the head of the number 10 Downing Street policy unit having to drive into Downing Street, go into the basement to find one of these overhead projectors because it was never used, and drive it personally to Chequers. <laughs> So this is how, at least I think in I think the, the Blair government that got elected in 1997, uh, note the segue, yeah. um, was very good at least at restoring the yeah, conference yeah. facilities of Downing Street. Was that was it an old school one with acetates? Yes. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Do you have one of those at school, John? Yeah, and you'd like to turn it round. You can write on write it. Write on it, yeah. Lovely. Happy days. No days. wonder we lost in a landslide. Uh, we're going to talk a bit later on about the, uh, the Keir Starmer uh, reshuffle. Um... Clearly, this is the, the, the team that Keir Starmer wants to take into the next election. Is this the team that Rishi Sunak will take into the next election, Danny? Uh, close to it. So my conclusion that he, though, about his lack of a big reshuffle and losing that moment when Ben Wallace moved, as he's really concluded there, isn't many, there aren't many people he could move, so he may as well stick with roughly this team to the election. I think so. And I, 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 mean, I think Keir Starmer's reshuffling in order to have the people around him he wants to govern... Uh, as well as as well as helping win the general election, I think Rishi Sunak um, has already got you know roughly what he what he wants, and there's no point doing it in order to freshen the team because what would we'll do that? He's achieved his one political objective, which was to promote Claire Coutinho, so that she's a player in the Conservative Party from now on. Um, and having done that, I'm not sure he's got any other particular objective. John, what do you think? Well, I think that was the clear thing from that reshuffle, that everyone spent several days talking about Grant Shapps and whether he had defence background, but it seemed that it was being done as a stepping stone. Clearly, he wants Claire Coutinho in a senior role in his cabinet, and you can't just push her from children's minister to, you know, one of the great offices of state. So it looked like it was a stepping stone, put her in that role... It's a brief that now that the different bits have been stripped out and hived off, it's a manageable brief. Yeah. It seemed like that was a way to boost her profile. But the idea of people talking about the possibility, oh, we might do another one after the King's speech. I mean, that's only in November. And remember that he has had to do repeated mini shuffles because of the people he chose in his team. Remember, there was obviously Gavin Williamson, Dominic Raab 
who else is gone? Uh, Nadim Zahawi, that because of the constant stream of mini sleaze scandals, he has had to slightly make different changes all over the place. And then there was that one when he moved all the letters around in the departments, which I can see that you speak to some people and you see, oh, there is a logic of having yeah. business and trade together. But when the clock is ticking down and you don't have that long before an election, you speak to people who worked in the old bays, the business, energy and industrial strategy department, who are now moved here and there. I just think that if you don't have much time to do stuff, moving the letters around in government departments it doesn't possibly change. None of that changes the fundamental problem that he has, which is 20 points behind in the polls. And Claire Coutinho is not going to single-handedly turn that around. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think you could ever expect the reshuffle to do, yeah, that. To do that. So yeah. it's not why you 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 do it. And I don't. You know, I don't think because um, moving Nick Thomas Simmons into um, you know being yeah. a shadow cabinet office role from Department yeah. of uh, International Trade is going to shift his Keir Starmer's. Poll, poll racing. I noticed that Steve Howe, one of Corbyn's supporters, just said that he was bringing back the people who'd wasted, um, wasted Blair's 1990s, wasted the 1997 Trump. Not pointing out that he was also bringing out the people who created the 1997 yeah, yeah, yeah. Trump. In the first and then won twice more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, just finally, then Theresa May's portrait. She's Theresa May's been painted. What do you make of it, John? I'm in two minds. So obviously, she looks very miserable in it and very stern. <laughs> And you wouldn't want it in your own wall. However, you can imagine pottering around Parliament, showing someone around Portcullis House, and then saying, oh, look at that Theresa May painting, and have a look at it and be like, it is a starting point. Well, if the person who did that painting is listening, I just want to say, I think you're a total genius. I couldn't do anything. I mean, just anybody who's listening well, to Well, as up, someone, I've been, trying to, I've been trying to paint Mariela Foss job, and it's really difficult. Yeah, 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 yeah. How amazing is that? Like? <laughs> we're doing it on the, I think we're doing it tomorrow. We're doing a, we've been doing a painting competition after we both discovered we like to doodle. And uh, mine is rubbish. <laughs> How amazing is that likeness? Yeah. I think it's yeah, extraordinary. The so for me, I anyway, like I thought Who. it was... I thought that painting was very, very good. I really did. And I like this morning on the morning round, Nick Gibb, the schools minister, who had loads of difficult questions about schools. He's someone who was in schools minister for 10 of the last 13 years. It's very tricky for him. And he was asked what he thought of the painting. got very awkward and just said, lovely. John Stevens from The Mirror and Daniel Finkstein, of course. From The Times, you can read Danny in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're going Blair to the future. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, I think he's made a, an excellent start as a leader and, and look, the Labour Party's been through a pretty traumatic time. That song, Things Can Only Get Better, that resonated. And there's a difference between being a party of protest and a party of government. Back in the day when I worked for the last Labour government, I worked for the Tony Blair Gordon Brown government as an advisor. I think he also said, you know, that uh, the party needed an antidote to the Blairites. Well, actually, what we need is an antidote to the Tories. Yes, we're going Blair to the future, or at least Keir Starmer is, with his retro reshuffle confirming the Blairites are back. He's got a very new-looking shadow cabinet, but with not-so-new faces. Uh, the team that will take him into the next election definitely remembers what it was like to win elections before. Five of his now new shadow ministers were all special advisers under Tony Blair. Well, Keir Starmer's been meeting with them this morning. This is what he told them. And I reshuffled um, and formed this new team yesterday with all that in mind. And you are around this table... Um, because of four things, your talent, your talent, your commitment, your hunger, really, really important. And because I wanted a team that wakes up every morning determined to rise to the challenges that our country faces and determined to prove our country for the better. So that is why you're around this table. And I'm really delighted and proud that you're all around this table. Just to be clear, they are all around the table. Uh, in a moment, we're going to hear from Lord Mandelson uh, to get his take on the uh, reshuffle. But joining me in the studio now, uh, Times columnist, uh, Times Radio senior political correspondent, Patrick McGuire. Hello, Matthew. Got more job titles than Angela Rayner. I know, I know. Uh, good to have you here. And uh, Chris Ward, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Kiss Starmer, and now advisor at Hanbury Strategy. Hi, Chris. Hello. Uh, good to see you. Um, Patrick, uh, in your analysis, uh, reading it this morning, You've got someone, uh, an MP said to you, even Tony Blair didn't have this many Blairites in the cabinet. We're not over-egging this, are we? No. The important thing about that quote is I think it gets to the heart of what happened yesterday. So what they meant was, Tony Blair's cabinets, there was an alternative power base in Gordon Brown, so they were always uneasy marriages of Blairites and Brownites, and there's a, there was a genuine sort of imbalance of power and a contest within the cabinet. Really now, you have one faction of the Parliamentary Labour Party that is in the ascendancy, that is dominant in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinets. And they are people who, by and large, you would describe as Blairites. So that might mean their ideological persuasion, they're on the modernising right of the party, or, in many cases, they worked for New Labour, they worked for Tony Blair and, in some cases, Gordon Brown. And what does that mean politically for Keir Starmer? Uh, well, I think the most immediate consequence and the most meaningful consequence is when Keir Starmer talks about reform over big spending in those key briefs, you know, health, education, uh, working pensions, uh, the, shadow, uh, the shadow treasury team, and now uh, the, uh, the cabinet office in Pat McFunley, he has people who mean what they say when they talk about reform of public services over big spending. 
Oh, okay, well, let's um, dive into this blockbuster reshuffle then, uh, with a little help from Peter Dixon. Let's start with Keir Starmer. Chris, you worked with him on two reshuffles previously. I did. I did the first two back when a reshuffle lasted two days. So this was like three hours. You got you got value for money when I was doing it. So um, were you involved in the last Andrew Ada one? Uh, I was. Yeah. Um, this seems to have gone better. Is this a sign it, that relations between the two of them are better? It went quicker, certainly. Yeah. Um, I think because last time he tried to demote her and she ended up with five jobs. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the first thing you take from that is always reshuffle when you're strong um, and never reshuffle when you're tired at the end of a by-election uh, that you've lost. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think he will be pretty relieved that yesterday uh, went pretty well from his point of view and I think he'll be pleased with the outcome. Um, he'll be relieved because he, he hates doing reshuffles. He really, really hates it. And I think he'll be pleased because he's done the two things he wanted to do, right? Which was put his preparation for government team in place, which, as you said, is is Pat McFadden, but it's also the campaign team has changed a bit more. The cabinet office has been beefed up. Sue Gray's coming in, obviously, to run the, the prep for government team. And the second bit is he wants to get the what he would call his A team into each of the each of the departments to do that. So I think he'll be relieved and pretty pleased. Can you shed some light on? The real Keir Starmer. <laughs> Did he... Uh, is this the real Keir Starmer? The, the, he, actually, deep down, he's always been a player, right? And this is where he wanted to be. And when he ran as a no. sort of um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn in a smarter suit uh, back three years ago, he was just pretending. Or was that the real Keir Starmer? And now he's pretending because he's realised that's how you win an election. Yeah, so firstly, I wouldn't say he's a player, right? Uh, at all. Starmer's much more complex than that, um, politically. He's much more ideologically fluid than that. He doesn't... The reason you can say he ran... Sorry, to the left on with a sort of with a sort of soft left plus parts of Corbyn plus you know got sixty percent of the parties. It's quite a lot. He ran there because he was able to embrace that. His politics doesn't fit neatly into one group. You got to always say this. We talk about this. Starmer doesn't come from a faction of the party, and he always navigates his way around the party to to where he's getting to. So I wouldn't say he's a Blairite first and foremost. Yeah. Um, I think what you're seeing now is a more confident Starmer and one who's much more able to put his shadow cabinet in place and pick his people. I think also the other thing, and this is actually different to when we were doing it, I think there's less attempt in this shadow cabinet to have a unifying effort. It's much more him picking his own people to go in. I mean, Patrick, you spoke about that. But it's pretty much putting the people he wants in it. And I think there's a, a strategic decision that the party has taken to do that. And that's fine, right? You always do that as you get yeah. close to an election. Corbyn had a Corbyn cabinet. Miliband had a Miliband cabinet. And you get there the close to the election. And, right? and would you say that word reform is the key point? Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, Keir's, I think the first... God, when I first started working with Keir about six years ago, the first, I remember him getting invited by the, I think it was the Fabians, to write an article on anything he wanted to write on. And I had all these big ideas about what it might be, be quite good fun. And he said, I'm going to write it on public service reform. Public service reform is the most important thing. It's what I care about. It's what I did as DPP. Uh, he's got sidetracked yeah, by yeah. various things over the way, but he actually really cares That's about That's where this he stuff. thinks he wants to end up. Now, the question would be whether he's reforming it he's taken people from the right, just the right of the party to try and do that or not. He, he doesn't think like that, though. He would think, I've picked modernisers, I've picked a sort of combination of experience and new people. I don't know, think of him like, I don't know, like an Alex Ferguson team or something where he's got the the, core, the spine of the team is like an older, experienced team and then he's got yeah. younger people attacking in different parts. So he's try, I think in his head, he's picking modernisers, people who think in his way and people who want to reform the party. Okay, let's move on as we pick our way through this then. Uh, we've done Keir Starmer. Let's move on to... Angela Rayner! Uh, how significant is this move, uh, Patrick? Angela Rayner moving to shadow Michael Gove uh, at levelling up. I mean, parallels being drawn with John Prescott, this sort of yin and yang, Tony Blair, the smoothie, uh, John Prescott, the straight-talking northerner, uh, in charge of a big department. You know, there's clearly comparisons there between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner. Yeah, and I think the... 
point about a big domestic department is one of the important ones, right? Because John Prescott had a huge sprawling department for much of his time uh, as Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, and so, look, it's a way of giving them a departmental power base. Prescott himself said that was the one, one of the most important lessons he learned is that you yeah. need, as Deputy Prime Minister, a big power base. Look, Angela Rayner has got what she wanted, i.e. a big domestic brief she can get her teeth into. Keir Starmer has a preparing for government team and a campaign team, uh, team he can properly, truly trust. And also, an important thing to note from yesterday is Angela Rayner got another new title, which was Shadow Deputy Prime Minister, which confirms for the first time she will be Deputy Prime Minister. You know, Gordon Brown had a deputy leader in Harriet Harman who he never made yeah. Deputy Prime Minister. That's interesting. Now. Well, let's move on, because we need to talk about uh, the person whose uh, job uh, that Angela Rayner has taken. Lisa Nandy! Now, um, when you and I spoke about this yesterday, Patrick, um, we were discussing how uh, a lot of the people that that Keir Starmer promoted yesterday were not people that supported him mm. for the Labour yeah. leadership. In fact, it's striking that Lisa Nandy, you know, ran against him last time at the, in the leadership. Is there is it is that significant that she ran against him for the leadership? Well, but I suppose two things that she ran against, but also he's he's now sort of. A lot of the people he's promoting as the great future of the party didn't even want him to be leader. Well, it's interesting because that speaks to something Chris was saying, right, in that um, it's the politician Keir Starmer has become confident and being able to speak the same language that the people who backed Jess Phillips, who was the sort of Blairite standard bearer in 2019, uh, in 2020 rather, uh, those people seeing Keir, a politician who they can trust with, a reforming Blairite agenda who's not making those compromises. That wasn't necessarily obvious from the unifying campaign yeah. that was run in 2020. And look, the Lisa Nandy, the Lisa Nandy question yesterday was a fascinating one. I think the whole episode really underlined the almost total authority Keir Starmer has over the PLP at the moment. Because, and, and Chris, having been there, you, you'll, mm. you'll know how it could have unfolded yesterday. Keir Starmer could have offered Lisa Nandy a demotion and she could have said, absolutely yeah. not, and walked out and made a huge fush. That didn't happen. Yep. Um, but, sorry, go on, Chris. No, I was going to say, look, I mean, I, I worked really closely with Lisa. I think she's great. I think she's a really good communicator. I, personally, I'm really pleased she's still in the Shadow Cabinet. Uh, I think it's a bit of a shame that she isn't in a more empowered position, if I'm being honest. I think she's a she's a strong communicator. And I think her and her relationship has basically deteriorated over the last couple of years with Kieran in the Leeds office. I think that's a bit of a shame, personally. Uh, just finally, we need to talk about... Thangham Debonair! Just because it's the last one we've got. What, what to make of the Thangham Debonair appointment, Patrick? Uh, well, again, another... Well, I think, you know, Thangham Debonair, good media performer, as we well know here on Times Radio, uh, is, uh, you know, been promoted. I'd say one thing, actually. We're talking about Lisa Nandy, Northern Woman MP in Greater Manchester. Lucy Powell, yeah. who was very, very keen to take on the new science brief that's been given to Peter Kyle, another Greater Manchester woman MP, Given a job she didn't really want in leader of the House of Shadow Leader of the House of Commons, that was something that was a big topic of conversation among Labour people on the terrace last night. You do wonder now. It seems like a moot point, or even even facile to say, let's look at the politics two or three years down the line. But there was one veteran Labour MP yesterday saying, in every leader's downfall, the seeds were sown at the point of maximum strength. And you do wonder. You look down the line. There are lots of Northern MPs. Keir Starmer might have alienated. When the going gets tough, do you see a you know, a wing of the party coalescing around Andy Burnham. And that, that I suppose, actually is the point, is that, that by, by picking his side, picking a side in the, in the grand spectrum of the Labour Party and alienating some of them, yeah, it's fine just, now, just, yeah. but at some point, you know, John McDonald becomes your Jacob Rees-Mogg or whatever it might be. Uh, before, uh, before we let you go... On Thangham, very, very quickly, people always say that you have square pegs around holes. Thangham was like a professional musician, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. She plays cello, she's gone into culture, she'd We've be great in it. before that's, playing the cello. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's perfect, you know... Um, 
Chris, um, a bit earlier on, Danny Finkelstein said we should yeah. open a museum of political fiasco to put like Liz Truss's uh, yeah. lectern in it. What would you put in it? Are you gonna Are you gonna float the reshuffle we did? Uh, the two-day reshuffle. Is that what you're going to say? How would you capture that in a... What would be the object <laughs> that you would put in the museum? Your delivery receipts or something like Yeah, that. I don't know. Me and, me and several others escaping to, to McDonald's at some point in the afternoon. Uh, good question. I don't know. That's the first thing that springs to my mind. The Hartlepool bar election. But... Um, um, uh, a, a, a McDonald's box. Yeah. Of, yeah. Sort of in a glass case. I've still got this picture of McSweeney coming back with like with a massive amount of McDonald's in the middle of it, with it all going with it all going around us, uh, not not very well. Yeah. Morgan McSweeney's Happy Meal toys. There exactly. You go. There you go. <laughs> Chris, really good to see you. Chris. Good well, to see you. Thank you. Uh, former chief, uh, deputy chief of staff to uh, Keir Starmer, now at Hanbury Strategy. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app, and on your smart speaker. This is Times Radio. Well, good morning to you, Matt Chorley, on Times Radio, taking a look at Keir Starmer's reshuffle. Well, it's still ongoing. He hasn't finished yet. He's going to do the uh, the junior ranks. He's been chairing his new-look shadow cabinet this morning, thanking them all for being back around the table, saying they're there, but thanks to their talent, commitment, hunger, and uh, wanted to wake up every morning and, uh, and uh, fight to get into government. But lots of the analysis, including by Patrick Maguire, who's still with me in the studio, has focused on... The shift to the right, the, the the move to promote people who worked for New Labour, who've championed New Labour, who described themselves as Blairites. Well, who better to speak to uh, when discussing uh, champions of New Labour than the man who created it himself, uh, Peter Madison, Lord Madison. Good morning. Why haven't I received a phone call then if we're now back to the 1990s? <laughs> I seem to be the one who's been left out. 69-year-old veterans of New Labour, Peter. Hilary Benn, you must be next. Look, I mean, it's perfectly clear that with Hilary Benn's return, and he'll be very good in Northern Ireland as well, I mean, there's a chance for the oldies. Are you, are you, you waiting know, by the phone, Peter? Things are looking up. <laughs> uh, what What is your assessment of it? Um, is it actually uh, Keir Starmer moving quite a long way from the position he ran on originally uh, back in uh, 2020? Um, is that is that the right analysis? And is it if it is, is it the right thing to do? Well, I think two things are happening. One is that he's considering, reconsidering, thinking through afresh uh, the sort of policies, the programme that he wants to set out to fight on at the next election and then implement uh, should he be elected in uh, government. Uh, that's one thing, and that accounts for his moving quite a long way uh, from that 10-point manifesto on which he fought the leadership election uh, in 2019-20. Uh, we can come back to that if you want, but it's now lost in the mists of... <laughs> The second thing he's doing is finding the right people, both to raise Labour's campaign game between now and the election, and it's probably going to be at least a year, but also the people who are going to help him prepare those uh, plans for government. The five missions that he's decided uh, he wants to be the priorities uh, for a Starmer-led Labour uh, government, well, they need to do more drilling down, more strength in depth, and that, again, is what's going to happen, you're going to see happening uh, over the next uh, year, and he's got better people, in my view, in place to help him do that. I mean, Keir Starmer has been very keen to stress the differences between now and 97. In fact, was it Tony Blair's, uh, 
I can't what it was called, Century's Dad Fest thing. What was it called? The Future of Britain? Future, Future Britain of Britain Conference. Conference. Um, uh, they were having in conversation on stage, and Keir Stomper was talking about how the political landscape now compares to 97. Let's just take a listen. We've only won from opposition three times, and obviously 97 was the last time. And the mood then was one of growing optimism. That song, Things Can Only Get Better, that resonated because it felt that was the mood of the country at the time. The economy was growing and, you know, what Labour was able to come in and, and absolutely sort of turbocharge that sense that we're going to go into a new century, it's a new way of doing politics, modernising, things can only get better. That's not the position now, by a long shot. Um, some people listened to that, uh, Peter, and thought, it's not very hopey change, is it? We can't promise that things are going to get better. Does Keir Starmer need to try and capture a bit of that? No, I, I'm not sure that Keir's absolutely right about this in 97. I mean, he's right and wrong. Because I think what characterised the election in 1997 uh, was that we had just come out of a sort of ghastly uh, decade of failure. Uh, for the country, during which, you know, the Conservatives were uh, falling out with each other and basically falling apart uh, over Europe. But that's essentially how you could characterise Thatcher's election in 1979. She came in after a a decade of uh, quite shameful failure in the running of the country, the government of the country, first under Heath, and then not frankly very successfully under Wilson. And she said, right, great sea change got to take place. Uh, the last decade's got to be has been a terrible failure. We've now got to close this chapter. Uh, she pulled the rug from underneath the sort of the consensus, the post-war uh, sort of corporatist consensus uh, system of government and approach and said, no, it's time for something completely different. And that, of course, is exactly what Attlee did in 1945 uh, as well. Attlee said, you know, look at the 1930s, a terrible decade of failure. The public's interests completely um, uh, let down. Uh, We've got to, it's been an era of decline. We've got to turn the page uh, and start afresh in this post-war world. And I think actually what Keir Starmer is able to point to is something very, very similar, similar to Attlee, similar to Thatcher, similar to Blair. We've had a decade of failure. We've got to close this chapter, turn the page and and start a new chapter in our national story. I think that's really what the next election is going to be about. Well, Peter, Keir has a shadow cabinet around him now who are prepared to speak about significant reform to public services and mean it and believe it when they say it in those key briefs like health and and welfare, uh, you know, ditto the Treasury team, all the delivery briefs, education are all people who uh, believe what they say, believe that very Blairite mantra of reform. But how can, you know, as the Times leader makes this point this morning, how can they do that without significant capital investment in a, you know, crumbling public realm and where's the money going to come from? Well, it's a perfectly good question, but it's one that will be much easier to answer in a year's time when we see what the state of the economy is. I mean, what the fiscal headroom uh, that's available to us will be in a year's time depends on what's happened to the economy in the meantime and what the prospects for uh, renewed economic uh, growth will be, what our borrowing capacity will be 
uh, will depend on borrowing costs at the time and what's happened to interest rates during the previous year, and also the confidence of the markets, how much they're prepared to lend. Now, I can't tell you, Patrick, you know, sitting here in uh, the beginning of September in 2023, what in over a year's time, the state of the economy, the state of the markets will be, the state of treasury revenues will be, what the fiscal headroom will be. I can't tell you all these things. So, Peter, Peter, is it a mistake then that we've seen that across the board, Rachel Reeves and uh, Keir Starmer keep ruling out things, ruling out increasing uh, income tax, uh, ruling out, uh, you know, they oppose the increase in national insurance to help uh, social care. That's just, should they stop making promises like that? In fact, I think we've got a kid. This is Paul Johnson, director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, uh, who was on the show yesterday. If you commit to increasing, as they have done, by hundreds and hundreds of thousands, the number of people working in the NHS, which we need for the NHS to be working properly in 10, 15 years, you need to say that that's going to cost money. And the only way I can see that that money's going to come from is by higher taxes, because it's not going to come from cutting the school's budget or cutting the defence budget or cutting the justice budget. There just isn't the money there. Is is Paul Johnson right, Peter? And as a result, is Keir Starmer wrong to rule out increasing income tax? I don't think he's wrong because we are now at the highest level of uh, tax in this country uh, of any time since the Second World War. And with a cost of living crisis felt so severely by people, you know, it's really not fair. It's not right. It's certainly not election winning uh, to go into an election and saying, well, uh, you know, we've got sky-high taxes and we're going to load more onto them. No, I don't think you can do that. But but there may well be, and Paul uh, Johnson would be the first to acknowledge this, uh, that uh, the fiscal state of the country will depend, as I say, on the state of the economy, the prospects for growth, uh, and therefore treasury revenues, which we can uh, appraise in a year's time. Uh, Peter, before I let you go, um, if uh, Keir Starmer did pick up the phone, Gordon Brown style, and say, come on, come on, join the gang again, have a job, you know, you're in the House of Lords already, so you don't need to go through that rigmarole again, would you do it? <laughs> well, it's a lovely idea, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and anyway, there's quite a lot I can do with them and for them, uh, you know, from the confines of my present uh, uh, office, you know, I'm going to give them all the help they want and all the help they need to get elected and to prepare their plans for government. I don't have to be, you know, on the inside track in order to do that. It's what I do to a certain extent uh, already. I don't do as much with or for Keir Starmer, obviously, as I did for Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or indeed Neil Kinnock uh, uh, before them. Uh, but, you know, where I can make a contribution, I always will because I want uh, Labour to be elected because I think that's what the we need the sort of cathartic experience in this country of a change of uh, government. And I believe in what the Labour Party now is saying it will do uh, for the country if it's elected in a way that I couldn't possibly uh, have said with equal confidence under Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I think I've, I've asked you if Jeremy Corbyn asked you in to, to help him out. I'm pretty sure I know what the answer would be. Um, um, finally, Peter, I don't know if you heard earlier on, Danny Finkelstein was talking about how he ought to have a museum of political fiasco. Put Liz Truss's lectern in there. Chris said he'd put happy uh, McDonald's, happy meals and one of their disastrous uh, reshuffles. What would you put in a museum of political fiasco? Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I've got one or two political fiascos of my own I could sort of put in the museum. What have you got uh, in mind? 
I'm not sure I, choose, I really want to go revisit them. And <laughs> a pot of guacamole, Peter. Indeed. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Peter Madison, always lovely to speak to you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. That's Peter Madison there. Before that, we heard from uh, Chris Ward, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Keir and uh, Patrick McGuire, Times columnist, uh, uh, Times writer, broadcaster, senior political correspondent for Times Radio. Gentlemen of leisure. Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. Tell you a matter of time. That's next. Uh, good to see you. I'll uh, take a peerage if I'm offered. <laughs> of course you would. I bet you already know what the name's going to be. <laughs> uh, Lord Maguire of... Uh, of Southport. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't miss tomorrow when we've got the first PMQs unpacked in ages. So hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.